Welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back to the show. If you're new here, the number one thing that you need to know is that everything we look at on this show is dictated by our three guiding principles, peace, property rights, and free markets. So if you want to know where we stand on anything, uh, just go back to those three principles, and that will pretty much sum it up most of the time. Uh, One thing I do want to mention before we talk about any of the regularly scheduled stuff in the show is that we have had two mass shootings in this country in the past 24 hours. Uh, The first one was yesterday afternoon in uh, Walmart in El Paso, Texas, and the gunman, uh, if I believe right now the the count is uh, there were 20 killed and another 26 or so injured. And then there was another shooting in a, uh, looked like outside of a bar or something like that in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, again, it was something uh, 10 or 20 killed and uh, another 20 or 30 injured, I think was the, the count that I read. I haven't heard anything really about the shooter in Dayton other than that they killed him, but in El Paso, uh, the guy left a manifesto, and it was a young, white uh, guy. He was like 21, 22 years old, and I looked through this manifesto, and um, it was just unbelievable to see the kind of ignorance that was being spewed there. This kid was a young kid, but you would have thought that he was a, a 60-year-old baby boomer. I mean, he was angry um, about immigration. He was angry about automation, taking their jobs. And he said that he felt like he was defending his country from an invasion of immigrants. And um, most importantly, I just want to say that this is heartbreaking. This is devastating. This is completely unacceptable. And this is not the appropriate way to fend off people who you may or may not like moving into your area, moving into your country. Regardless of how you feel about immigration, it is never okay to aggress upon another person if, if they're not hurting anybody. And by these people moving to this country, trying to seek a better life, trying to find jobs, and, and trying to feed their families, they haven't done anything wrong. They haven't hurt anybody. Now, if, if someone's committed a crime or something like that, then yeah, maybe it's a different story. But ultimately, all of us as humans are just trying to get along and trying to do the same thing. So People are so quick when things like this happen to politicize it, and we've already seen, I saw where the senator out of Ohio, uh, Sherrod Brown, was calling for gun reform. People in Texas, some of them are pushing for the same thing. And of course, you've got your pro-gun people pushing back just as hard, trying to impress the the idea that more people should have been armed, and that you know the only way to fight a good guy with a bad guy with a gun is a, a good guy with a gun, and all of this stuff. And... We're going to talk about this another day. Uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be the next episode. Maybe I'll wait a few episodes. But one thing that I had posted to Twitter and to Facebook was that, first of all, the first thing that we need to do is we need to acknowledge that this is devastating. We need to acknowledge that this is a horrible thing that happened, and we need to be sympathetic now, and we can talk policy later. We can talk the theory behind these things later, but most importantly... Let's just stop, and let's just take some time to grieve over this tragedy, over this loss, before we start jumping into who's to blame and how we can fix it and what needs to be enacted. Because the one thing that I want to emphasize more than anything is that whether it be in your personal life, whether it be in your relationships or your finances or your professional life or in politics— emotional decisions are bad decisions. So when people make these gut reactions after these tragedies, whether it be to ban all guns or all semi-automatic rifles, or if you jump to the opposite conclusion that is everybody should be armed all the time or you know all teachers should be armed whether they want to be or not, those are not well-rationed decisions. Those are not things that you have thought through. Those are not things that these people have taken the time to really weigh out. Instead, it is a reaction to the tragedy that's happened. And most importantly, at this point in time, our reaction needs to be sorrow. It needs to be sympathy. We need to just grieve with the people who are grieving and um, take take some time in our own lives just to be grateful for what we have and grateful for the people, uh, the friends and family that we have to know that 
that this kind of stuff can happen at any given time, and it could happen to us. It could happen to somebody we know, and so I'm not going to talk about guns on this show. I'm not going to talk about mass casualties or mass incidents. I did mention it in test episode four, and um, I didn't deliver that maybe as well as I could have. It was just a test episode, still getting the hang of things, but we'll go over this again someday, and we will definitely talk about uh, a lot of the causes of this and maybe some of the things that we can do to prevent it and um, you know where guns fall into all of that, where you know knives and cars and bombs and all of those things, how they factor into this. But for this episode, we're just going to leave it at that. All right, I said that we would be talking more about the debates as they kind of unfolded, and we had more debates this week. And there were no big changes, no real huge surprises, uh, but there were a couple things that I noticed that I wanted to talk about. Joe Biden, early on, is making his push to be more moderate and kind of reaching out to more moderate voters. And he challenged Bernie Sanders and Liz Warren when they're talking about Medicare for All, and he's talking about how expensive it's going to be, and, and that this is just not feasible, and uh, really saying, like, listen, or, or, you know, can we talk about something that we can actually do, something that's actually going to happen? And uh, John Delaney jumped in with, him, with that as well and just said, look, you know, we're talking about impossible things here. <laughs> As I mentioned before, to win your primary and your party, you've got to win over you know, your hardcore people, the people that are invested in that party and making that party happen. So what that's going to do is that's going to push you more toward the edges, more away from the center. That's why you're hearing so much talk about uh, reparations and college debt forgiveness and free college for everybody and all of this extra free stuff and all the things that are a human right because those are the people who vote in the party primaries. So they are trying to be pretty hard left to make sure that they're getting the votes of those hard left people because those are the people who are going to go out of their way to go vote in primaries. What happens though is once you get the nomination, you've got to move back toward the center and you've got to you you know that those hard left people are going to vote for you no matter what, but it's the people in the center, the undecided people who you need to work to bring them in a little bit more and maybe the people even on your side who aren't as serious that you can motivate them to get out and vote for you. That was part of the issue with Hillary was that there were plenty of Democrats who kind of half-heartedly supported her and they expected her to get the nomination, but they weren't excited enough about her to actually go out to the polls and, and to cast their vote. So that turnout is something that hurt her. Um, by John Delaney and Joe Biden kind of getting an early jump on that, they wanted to try to get some of those center people watching them and hopefully get an early jump on and winning those people over, but that could cost them votes from their own party early if, and, and cost them the primary. Liz Warren did clap back at them and she said, uh, I don't have the exact quote, but it was something to the effect of, I don't know why we're running for president just to talk about all the things that we can't do. And that was a big line, brought a lot of applause, and that was a very, a very strong, hopeful message. Now, again, on this show, we are grounded in reality, and we talk a lot about what can really happen and what kind of effects these things have. But you got to remember that when you're trying to win an election, you're not talking about reality. You're not talking about the way that things really are or the things that it would really take to fix something. You're just talking about points that are going to get your voters pumped up, and they're going to get excited to go out and vote for you. And that's that's the most important thing. It doesn't matter that you really do anything. Um, we even look, like we've talked before, about this this border crisis and the, the fight over the border wall and, and detaining immigrants and all of this stuff. And as we've pointed out here, the solution to that is immigration reform. The, the solution to that is finding a better way to move these people through a process of checking who they are and either getting them into the country and letting them get to move into a home and get to work or pushing them back out of the country and saying that they've been rejected and, and you make a decision one way or the other instead of holding them and splitting them up and making this big mess. But nobody wants to talk about those difficult, complicated things. It's just either everyone has a right to be here or kick them all out. And that's pretty much what you're left with from your politicians with this. So again, they are in the business of rallying people and motivating people. They're not necessarily in the business of actually making changes and making things happen. Now, the highlight of the night with these debates, what everybody was talking about was the fact that Tulsi Gabbard absolutely destroyed Kamala Harris. 
Tulsi called Kamala out for putting so many people in jail for nonviolent drug crimes, and you heard me. I was fired up about this in the last episode, and fortunately, Tulsi agreed with me here. And apparently there was another instance where she blocked DNA evidence from being brought in to a death row inmate's appeal. I looked this up briefly. I didn't dig into it too much, and I'll throw a couple links in the show notes. The San Francisco Channel 5 article seems to have the most information, but they also seem to be running interference for Kamala Harris. So from what I could tell, there was a murder case from 1983, I believe it was, and this guy, I think his name was Cooper, He was convicted of this crime, but found out later that there was DNA evidence that uh, at the time of the conviction, DNA wasn't really, um, you know, people didn't understand it as well. The methods for matching it weren't as good. So DNA wasn't completely trustworthy at this point, at that point. But fast forward a few decades, and here we are with DNA really having it down to a science and being able to do a lot with it. And so... This inmate is asking in his appeal that they take that DNA evidence back into court and that they look at it because he believes that it will exonerate him from the crime. And Kamala Harris was trying to block that. Now, once it kind of came out that she had blocked it and once they got a little bit of press that this guy thinks that DNA can get him off of death row and Kamala Harris is blocking it, she made some phone calls, changed her tune, said that she's all about the DNA and that she hopes that they'll change their position and, of course, did the did the politician thing and, and started to act like she cared at that point. The other thing that one of these, uh, the article points out as it kind of covers for her is that she didn't necessarily put away, uh, I think it was like 4,000 drug users during her time there, but that it all happened under her watch and that obviously she wasn't involved in every court case. But the, the point is, she was in the best position to make a difference in those things. And, and that was even what she tried to reply, was that she did make a difference in, in her leadership and stuff like that. But all it would have taken was for her to say, listen, these people didn't hurt anybody. Why are we doing this? Why are we wasting our time and money on this, ruining these people's lives? Now, this stuff is going to be a theme for Kamala Harris. They are going to continue beating her up over this stuff, and Donald Trump is going to have a field day with it. If Kamala gets the nomination, as I've said before, I really think that, no pun intended, but the president's Trump card is going to be that he's going to take steps to decriminalize marijuana while he's running against her so that he can say, listen, this woman put away thousands of people for a harmless plant, and here I am doing what I can to to free them and to, to stop this nonsense. But man, Tulsi really laid into her over this and it was a huge moment. It, w- it was a big step back for Kamala Harris and it was a big step forward for Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang were actually the most searched people. They, they gained the most search points after this second debate. Now on the first debate, Tulsi Gabbard was the most searched candidate But at the same time, Google suspended her Google ad account and they started sending a bunch of her campaign emails to the junk folders of Gmail accounts. And this all happened during the six or eight hours that that searches in her name were spiking. So the time that she needed it most, the time that she needed to make a big impression, Google stepped in and they, they basically tried to block her from being able to benefit from her debate performance. So she is suing Google now and taking them to court because she believes that she was unfairly targeted. Now, I attached an article in the show notes from uh, Lou Rockwell, and Lou Rockwell is a libertarian and cap type site. So there is uh, an obvious bias there, but everything he's saying there are things that I agree with. And he talks about why it's it's good that Tulsi is going after Google and why it's good that we are being made aware of the kind of things that Google's doing. I'm also going to, I've attached it before, but I'm also going to put a link to an episode of the Tom Woods show in the show notes. And there's a show where he went in and he interviewed a psychologist and they did some studies with the way that Google search results work. And they took uh, American people, They polled them about an Australian election so that basically so that it was people that you didn't know anything about. They were just names and they told people, hey, I want you to search these few names and decide who you want to search for. They realized in this study 
that just by changing the order of the search results, making sure that you saw the results that they wanted you to see first, um, they thought maybe they could influence elections by, you know, two or three percent of the vote, that they might be able to change a minimal amount. And it actually turned out to be something like 30 or 40 percent of the vote they could change just by changing the order of the, the search results. So, um, you know, I think the same thing happened about Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election. If you were to Google like Hillary Clinton scandals, what they would do is they would talk about Hillary Clinton's comments on other scandals. So, you know, Hillary Clinton talks about, you know, a Trump scandal or Hillary Clinton talks about some something to do with a state government somewhere. And it was completely working around and you would have to go back several pages before you would actually see anything about the scandals surrounding Hillary Clinton, which, of course, has followed her through her entire political career. And so they would do the same things with with other search results, and you could easily see how they were able to really guide uh, what a lot of people think. Because if you are, usually if you're Googling something, you have an open mind. Those are the times when it, they can make the biggest impact on influencing your decisions. If you've already made your mind up about something, it's it's kind of hard to change that. And we've talked about those um, with a lot of our talk about persuasion already, is that, that when you make up your mind, and especially if there's emotion tied behind that, it's not going to change it no matter what. But if you are genuinely trying to research something, you are asking to be influenced. You're looking for things that are going to pull you one way or the other. And if Google puts certain things up front or certain candidates up front and pushes the other ones back, that's going to have a big effect on how this election could turn out and how these Democratic primaries could turn out. So by them going after Tulsi in that way, and let me tell you, it's it's because she's so strongly anti-war and it's because uh, the media and the tech companies they know who they want to be the candidates and they know who will be friendly to their agendas and and Tulsi's also talked about breaking up Google and breaking up Facebook and while I don't personally agree with the government interfering in private businesses like that she is a candidate she is a a free American human and she has the right to have those opinions and and we need to be able to discuss those between us as people instead of having the tech companies make those decisions for us. Uh, Moving forward, coming out of that debate, creepy Joe Biden, he's hanging in there better than expected. Um, He did recover a lot and they kind of laid off of him. I talked before about how they really laid into him and and kind of accused him of being racist uh, because of some of the stuff that he did during the civil rights movement. I think most of those claims were, were really bogus and they were really unfair to him because, you know, he was someone who pushed for civil rights and all of that stuff back in the day. And obviously our views on race have changed over the last several decades. And there were things that you could say and things that you could think even 10 years ago that would be completely unacceptable now. So to go after him for things he did 40 years ago, that's unfair. Um, but that's that's something that they're doing. And as I've said before, I think that they are... Uh, very set on making sure that they have a female candidate, that the Democrats really, really want to elect a female president, and they've made that a, a big point. And unfortunately, that's going to push out some of their other good candidates like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And again, I, I disagree with those guys a lot, but if you're talking about trying to get votes, those guys are, are good candidates to get you votes and to get you money, and they're they're pushing them off to the side a little bit because they want to have a woman so badly. And uh, I also tweeted this week, one of my big predictions is that the, the Republicans are actually going to elect a female president before the Democrats can pull it off just because the Democrats are so inundated with identity politics and so obsessed with making sure that somebody checks off all of the right boxes, that, that they're uh, female, that they're a minority, that they have this and they have this, and they're, they're missing out on choosing some of their best candidates just because the the best candidates at the time don't happen to be uh, everything that they want from a demographic standpoint. But, you know, if they drop those, maybe Joe Biden has a shot to stay in there. Bernie Sanders is also sticking around pretty well, but uh, the DNC, they screwed him over once and they'll do it again. But as I've said before, I think Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have your best shot at beating Trump head to head in an election. But I also think that they have a very, very low chance of actually winning their uh, party to, to get to that point where they could run against Trump. Um, I'm still putting all my money on a Liz Warren or a Kamala Harris ticket, and I think Trump can easily defeat either of those women in an election. He's already pretty well broken Liz Warren, the whole Pocahontas thing, and then Kamala, uh, he's going to tear her up as well. I think that she 
tries to be strong, she tries to be tough, and um, it just doesn't quite come off as genuine. And I think some of these people, uh, Trump has this persona as a tough guy, and Trump wants to, you know, be this, the strongest, loudest guy in the room, and that works for him because that's who he is. But if you have somebody like kind of, you know, your small, meager Liz Warren coming up there trying to emulate that, it's not going to go over well. That's not who she is. She's an intelligent, well-spoken woman, but but she's a little bit soft-spoken. And if you try to put a, a square peg into a round hole, it, it's not going to go over well for them. And if you are going to beat Donald Trump, you've got to be at your best because uh, while I think he is an average president at best, which isn't saying much if you know what I think about any of the other presidents, but he is a good candidate and he is a good motivator and he's going to be tough to beat. And I, I still think as long as the economy holds up, regardless of who the Democrats put forward, whether it be Kamala Harris or Liz Warren or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, I think that Trump is going to be your president through 2024. So here's a segment I've been looking forward to for a month now. Let's talk about the economics of the Democratic debates, especially a lot of those thrown out by Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders. I apologize that I ran out of time in the episodes before that, but I wanted to make sure that I was able to cover as much as I could of this in one episode so that you knew what to listen for as you talk about these things with your Facebook friends and with your Twitter friends and with your coworkers in the break room, that we have something to, to really combat a, a lot of these claims and a lot of these solutions that the Democrats are suggesting. Most importantly, remember what I said last episode. One of the 48 laws of power is play to people's fantasies. Make the solutions look easy. Uh, For politics, your rule of thumb is if it sounds good in a tweet, if it looks good on a bumper sticker, then it's probably going to win you a lot of popularity. Truth and math be damned. They've talked a little bit about reparations. Um, That was a big part of Marianne Williamson's campaign. She wants between $200 and $500 billion allotted for reparations. Now, Michael Malice did the math on this on an episode of Nightshade, and if you split this up between all African Americans, each family, uh, depending on the figure, is getting somewhere between like $6,000 and $14,000, which is not a life-changing amount of money by any means. Also, there's basically no way to verify who's a descendant of slaves or who's a descendant of slave owners, so you're just going to be making guesses here, and that's going to include more and more people, which means that that reparation check that they get is going to become smaller and smaller because you're splitting it more ways, uh, which means it makes even less of a difference in their lives to to fixing anything or, or making anything right again. So when that happens, if that were to happen, it's not going to make much of a difference, and then you're going to be stuck talking about it again in that another couple of years because the first time wasn't good enough. Something else I heard on an episode of the Chris Ann Hall show, I didn't look to verify it, but they said that only 1% of people in, I I don't know if it was in the southern states or in all of the United States, but only 1% were actual slave owners. And that most of the time, you know, you've got one very, very, very wealthy plantation owner and they had lots and lots and lots of slaves where I know the picture that was painted for me in public school was that, you know, everybody in the South pretty much had a slave or two and that that was just part of life down there and that they all believed in slavery and they all did this. Kristen Hall is um, an excellent, has an excellent show and she's a, she's a very good historian, especially in the United States history. So if, if that's what they're saying, I would be prone to believe it. So I didn't fact check it myself, but if that's the case, are you trying to collect reparations from the descendants of those 1%? Um, of course not. They're going to argue that this is a systemic thing, but it, it just it's so complicated and so convoluted that it's impossible to prove anything and it's impossible to nail down a good figure of what you would have to pay, who you would have to pay it to, and whether or not that's going to make anything right in the first place. Um, Liz Warren also wants to forgive student loans. Truth be told, we do have a student loan crisis. This crisis was caused by government in the first place. One of our guiding principles is free markets. So let's take a step back and let's talk about a free market approach to banks and loans. In a free market economy, uh, let's say you have a bank 
people are going to come to you to, to store their money in your bank. So they put it in a savings account, they put it in a 401k, whatever kind of investment they want to do. And other people are going to come to you because they want you to loan them money. So what you do as a bank is you simply look at how much money people have in savings and you look at how much money people want to borrow in loans and you charge the people that you loan a little bit of extra interest. And as they pay that loan back and you collect that extra interest, you give a little bit, uh, a small share of that interest to the people who are saving with you. So that way it is profitable for the people who are saving with you and you are also making profit by collecting some interest off of those loans and you being the bank are able to constantly look at how much money is being saved there and how much money is being loaned out and you can actually change those interest rates to reflect how well balanced that is. So if it looks like maybe too many people are borrowing money and you're not quite sure that you're going to have enough to, to lend out to everybody, what you do is you're going to raise interest rates for loans so that it's more expensive to get a loan and you're not going to give a loan out to as many people and they're going to have to pay more in order to take a loan. And you're also going to raise interest rates in the savings accounts so that people are hopefully more encouraged to give money to you in your bank because they're going to be making more of a profit off of that as well. Now, when you've got a big stash of cash in the bank and you want people to take out more loans because you've, you've got more money than you know what to do with, essentially, you're going to lower interest rates so that people maybe won't make as much money saving with you and they will also be cheaper to take out loans. So that allows you to constantly move back and forth to balance whether or not there are enough loans out there and whether or not there's enough savings out there. Now, what has happened is the government has come in and they have created a lot of money. They've used the Federal Reserve, which is the, the national bank, the, the bank that all of the banks report to. And they've pumped more money into the economy. And they also, one of the things that the Federal Reserve, if you hear somebody talking about the Fed, that's what it is. The, the Federal Reserve, they dictate what interest rates should be. And so what they do is they push interest rates down to keep them artificially low so that as many people will borrow money and spend money as possible. And it doesn't, it, what it does is it discourages people from saving. And of course, it looks good on paper because it means a lot of things are happening in the economy and everybody's spending money and, and that means that money is going to other people. And all of that is fine and good, except when you're discouraged from saving, you don't have anything to fall back on. Um, you know, and, and, it, and it does make the stock market look good, which is something that we've talked about before that everybody likes to use as an indicator. But using the stock market to talk about how well the economy is doing is kind of like looking at somebody's car to decide how much money they make. You know, sure, they may drive a really nice car, but they could be in debt up to their eyeballs. And at the same time, you could have a really rich, well-off guy who's driving an old beater because he doesn't want to waste money on a car. So it can be an indicator um, but it's only one indicator and it's a very small part of the story and it doesn't tell you the whole story. So likewise, the way that the Federal Reserve has encouraged people to spend more money, they did the same thing in college and they decided that they wanted more people to go to college. And the biggest obstacle to going to college for a lot of people was that they didn't make enough money to qualify for a loan. One other thing is that if you're a bank and people aren't qualified for this loan, if you have somebody who's very poor coming to you asking for a lot of money, it's not likely that they're going to be able to pay you back, right? So as a bank, you would want to protect yourself and say, sorry, I'm not going to give money to somebody who doesn't look like they're qualified or somebody who has bad credit because it would appear to me that I'm going to get screwed over here and I'm going to be out all of that money. Well, what the government has done is a lot of times they tell them to give the loans anyway, and then they will insure them against those loans, or they will just create money and give it to the banks to give out as loans. So the banks are not taking on a risk anymore, so they're going to be loaning money to much more risky borrowers. So the government decides everybody needs to go to college. We need to make that money more available. So we need to make sure that everybody's getting money for college. So what they do is they, they say, you know, we need to give loans to people who maybe can't afford it. We need to, to just create all of this money. And what that's going to do is that's going to make our, our people better educated. It's going to help them get degrees. It's going to help them get better jobs and make more money. That means we're going to make more tax money. Everybody's going to be happy, right? Well, that's not necessarily how things work. 
you, I'm sure you're familiar with the laws of supply and demand. And if you have a lemonade stand and the government starts handing out subsidies for lemonade and giving everybody money to buy lemonade, you're going to get flooded with customers. And these people are essentially almost throwing free money at you. So the best thing for you to do as a business owner is to raise your prices because business is good. Everybody's buying. You got a, a nearly unlimited supply of money to work with. So why don't you raise your prices up? Well, that's what happened with colleges is suddenly all of these students are flooding into colleges. Colleges are partially, you know, having difficulty keeping up with the influx of people. So they've got to raise their prices to make sure that they build more buildings and hire more staff and all of that. And at the same time, it's just a a thing about profit. You want to make more money as well. So if people are willing to pay, you know, 10 grand tuition a year and everybody wants to pay you $10,000 a year, well, why don't we bump it up to 15000 or 20000 to make sure that, that we can make as much money as we can so that we can grow and we can be profitable? So what you've already seen done is that the colleges' prices have gone up, which means that loans are, have gone up, which means people are going to want to borrow even more money to afford the college that they are now going to. At the same time, people are getting degrees in fields that aren't necessarily all that useful. Everybody wants to be an artist. Everybody wants to be a musician. Everybody wants to go live their dream. And the sad fact is not everybody gets to be a famous artist or poet or writer or musician. Um, Not everybody gets to work in their dream field because some of those fields are limited. You know, we can't all be Johnny Depp. That's just not the way that life works. So now you have all of these students who have taken out tons of loans um, to afford college, and then that pushed the prices up, which caused them to take out more loans. They have often got degrees in fields that aren't very useful, and just because a lot more people have degrees now, your degree isn't worth as much, because everybody has a degree. Why, why are you so special? Because you have one. And then that means that it's harder for them to get a, a good job and a, a high-paying job to pay back their loans. So now we're in this predicament where all kinds of these students have are defaulting on their student loans because they can't afford to pay them back because they took out this exorbitant amount of money and then they found out that a lot of those jobs weren't out there. A lot of that money wasn't out there and the, the thing, these things aren't quite as easy as they expected them to be. Now, a lot of people really want to beat up on the students on this and they want to say, hey, you know, you, were, you signed your name to the line. You took out that money. You've got to pay it back. And I I think that that's a bad approach, too, because these people are getting they got swindled. You know, they were told that if they went to college and they took out these loans, that they were going to get paid back in no time, that they were going to be making loads more money because they went to college and that they were going to get paid so much more that it was going to be no problem to pay off their loans. And they were going to buy a house and it was going to have a white picket fence and everything was going to be fantastic. But let's be real. When you were 18, a lot of us weren't the brightest crayon in the box. You believe those things because people tell you those things. And if if they say, go to college, take out a lot of debt, and then you'll get rich later, well, okay, that sounds good to me. A lot of of parents were telling their students these things. So I don't completely fault them for this, but they they were definitely swindled by, you know, a government that was trying to, supposedly trying to help people, but they messed with the free market, and you see this problem that we are left with. Now, Liz Warren wants to forgive the student debt to all of these students. She wants to just wipe clean the student loans. I think Bernie Sanders has talked about the same thing. Hillary Clinton talked about the same thing in 2016 about her plan to do it. Now, two things. Number one, this absolutely does nothing to solve the current problem, okay? There is still truckloads and truckloads of money being pumped into the college market, and students are taking on tons and tons and tons of debt which, as we've said before, drives up the prices, drives down the value of the degree, makes it hard for them to get a job, they can't pay things back, and they're going to continue. You, you forgive this batch of student loans and give it a few years, and you're going to have another whole class of graduates who is completely unable to afford their loans and still crippled in debt. So you're going to be looking at doing the same thing over again because it didn't actually fix the problem. Uh, the other thing is, these these bailouts, if you want to call them that, they're going to show up as inflation for the rest of the country. Um, so you've already inflated their money once to create these loans, which means you know the cash in your pocket is now worth less because they, they printed more of it and put more into the economy. And they're likely going to inflate the money again to pay those loans off or to forgive them. So you are taking those loans 
And by forgiving them, you are essentially charging the entire United States and everyone in the world who uses the U.S. dollar, you're taking that out of their wallet for them to pay for. Most of us would say, uh, again, in a free market system, that's not fair. That's not the way that that works. It's not fair to take the value of somebody else's money away to put it toward a pet project that you want. Uh, and we're going to talk about inflation some more in just a few minutes. Now, Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders, they also want to implement Medicare for all. Now, I mentioned the British National Healthcare System a few episodes ago when they were trying to force that disabled girl to have an abortion against her will. And I talked about a lot of the, the horrible wait times, a lot of the horrible service. We're not going to go into that really anymore today, but suffice it to say that socialized healthcare is very, very expensive and it's very, very low quality. And that cost, again, is going to go to you, the taxpayer. You're going to be the one paying for it. And it's going to get paid for in the form of both taxes and inflation. Because, let's be real, the government's not going to be able to afford it either. So, um, during these first debates, they also all raised their hands to provide free health care to immigrants who are crossing into our country illegally. Guess who's paying for that? It's not coming out of Uncle Bernie's pocket, I can tell you that. Now, they've also brought up a myriad of other rights, quote-unquote, that need to be paid for. Uh, Kamala Harris wants to provide free housing to released inmates, and I already went nuts over that in the previous episode. She wants to make it easier for black people to get a mortgage, which is pretty much the same thing that caused the, the housing crisis in 2007 and 2008 because we were giving everybody who wanted a mortgage a mortgage. Same thing, we just talked about that with the student loans. Just because you're handing out money for those things doesn't mean it's actually going to help them or that it's really going to help anybody. It's, it's going to hurt all of us. A lot of them have even mentioned uh, free childcare so that you can go to work and somebody's paying for your daycare. Um, actually, Trump and Ivanka Trump have mentioned that as well. And, of course, Democrats want to keep expanding welfare, food stamps, all that kind of stuff. They want to spend $10 trillion on the Green New Deal because if we don't do something right now, climate change is going to end the world. Now, we know this is going to happen because climate change also ended the world in 1988 and it ended the world in 1999 and I believe it ended the world in 2014 and we're actually due for the next one in early 2021. We've got 18 months now before the world ends again because of climate change. I'll throw a link to the BBC article down on the bottom that said that. But, yeah, what do I know? I don't know. The world's going to end if you don't give the ozone $10 trillion. Or, uh, I'm not quite sure how that's supposed to work. And on top of that, you've got all of these other rights that we need to make sure is paid for. Um, you know, a job is a right. $15 wage is a right. Housing is a right. Uh, Health care is a right. Uh, cell phone is a right. Maybe having 10000 subscribers to your podcast is a right. Bernie, if you're listening, um, I'm, I'd be willing to make some compromises if you could make that happen for me. But the point of it all is this stuff is expensive. How are we going to pay for it? Well, there's essentially two ways that we can pay for it. Number one, tax the rich. The top 1% owns as much wealth as the bottom 90%, according to the Washington Post. Now, I did not fact-check that because I do not care. The fact of the matter is, um, that nobody ever wants to talk about in this country, is that if you make thirty-two grand a year, you are in the top 1%. If that is such a, a big crisis that the, the richest people need to be paying for the stuff of all of the poorest people, you need to realize that you are quite rich because you own a refrigerator, you have a checking account, most of you have a car, you have a decent paying job, you have food in your refrigerator, and sure, things may be difficult sometimes, I know that it can be tough to pay the bills, but the most important thing, just as I mentioned gratefulness um, in the beginning of the episode, we have to stop and realize that you live better even as a poor person, even if you're making minimum wage, you live better than the richest people in the world lived 100 years ago. They didn't have central air conditioning. They didn't have a well-functioning heater. They didn't have a cell phone that they could pick up and order a pizza with at any time they want to. They didn't have access to the internet. All of this stuff that is, is completely basic that everybody has. Heck, everybody you know has a flat screen TV. Can you believe that? 
So first of all, if you are so concerned about all of the inequality in the world and all the income inequality, then by all means, you need to be the first one to sell all your stuff and to send it to Africa and to send it to Asia because those places uh, are really hurting compared to even, even the worst of us here in this country. But if we can just get the rich here to pay their fair share, everything else is going to fall in line, right? Well, there's a meme floating around that says if you confiscated wealth from all the country's billionaires, you could afford to run the government for eight months. I googled it and I pulled up the first link and it's a fact checker that says this is false. I thought, okay, well, that's that's fair. You know, I've been had before. Read it a little bit closer. It says, actually, these billionaires made more money since the figures were taken in 2016. They've gotten richer since then. So now uh, they could actually, if you took all of their wealth, you could actually run the federal government for nine months, not eight months. So a uh, big shout out to that fact checker there for straightening us out there. But the point of that is all of the things that the government's doing already, let alone without all of these added entitlements and without all of this extra debt forgiveness and without all of these other things, the government is already running a massive, massive deficit and it's, it's spending way too much money as it is. But what happens if we do tax the rich heavier? AOC often talks about the good old days when top earners were taxed at 90%. Should we go back to that system, a 90% income tax for the, the top bracket? Well, let's take a look at this article from Fee. This article is from fee.org. It was published in August 2017. I got a link down there in the show notes. This article is called, Why the Rich Actually Love High Taxes. So, article kind of starts out says you know we always hear that the rich should pay taxes more and their tax rates aren't high enough if you look back to the 1950s when the top tax rate was all the way up to 91 percent that is not a typo i said it 91 percent now the top tax rate in the united states was 91 percent if you made two hundred thousand dollars or more in income anything above that was subject to a 91 percent tax so Every dollar that you made over 200 grand, you got nine cents of it. That's all you got to see. The rest went to Uncle Sam. It says there were 26 tax brackets to that income tax code back then. They ran from 20% at the bottom all the way up to 90%. If you made any kind of money at all, you were paying 30, 40, 50% off of the, the top part of your income. It says, now you may be thinking, but wait a minute, the 1950s, they were the greatest economic era ever. That's when everybody had a job. Those jobs were for life. People got to live in suburbia and go on vacation and do all sorts of amazing things. It was post-war prosperity, right? Well, uh, the author points out, all of these things are myths. In the 1950s, or pretty much around that decade, the United States suffered four recessions. They had a recession in 1949, they had a recession in 53, 57, and 1960. So there were four recessions in 11 years. The rate of employment kept going up all the way up to 8% in the most severe recession of 1957 and 58. So there really wasn't significant growth. Um, a lot of that growth was simply recovering from the last recession. Uh, growth only averaged 2.5% during Eisenhower's presidency. And the tax code just caused even more inequality. Now, how is that possible? If we are taxing the rich, if we are soaking them for everything that they've got over a certain amount, because as you've heard today, nobody needs a million dollars. So let's just take away everything anybody makes over a million dollars or whatever it is. And, and whoever you talk to, it's always the, the person who's a little bit richer than them that doesn't need anything. You don't, you don't need to tax me. You need to tax the next guy. Well, the problem here, it says that this caused inequality. Why did it cause so much inequality? Well... When your top income tax rate is 91%, it's very valuable for you to get an exception for the income tax. See, if you were able to get something written into the tax code that you don't have to pay that 91%, maybe you could pay it at a lower rate, maybe you're completely exempt from it, well, that would be very convenient and very helpful for you, wouldn't it? The tax code in the 1950s, the article says, was 11,000 pages. The first two pages of the tax code said very simple things. The opening line of the tax code said that income is taxable from any and all sources derived. That means any money you make from anywhere, that's taxable. 
Doesn't matter if it's bank interest. Doesn't matter if you did it doing your job. Doesn't matter if you were mowing lawns. Wherever that money came from, it needs to be taxed. Okay? I don't like taxes, but understanding that is simple enough. And then the second two pages of the tax code came with a list of the rates. The rates that started at 20% on low income and went all the way up to 91% on high income. So, let's just rehash. Page one says, if you make money, you got to pay the tax man. Page two and three says, these are the tax bracket rates. If you make this amount of money, you pay 20%. If you make up to this amount of money, you're going to bump up to 30%. However that works. Now, the next 11 thousand pages in the tax code were all exceptions to those statements in the beginning. They were pet statutes that were written into law by Congress at the behest of lobbyists that said this income is not subject to taxation. And always, in just about every case, it had to do with the income of the rich. This is one of the most notorious cases, perfectly legal, was movie studio mogul Louis B. Mayer. In 1951, he retired from his studio in Hollywood, and he got a lump sum payment from the studio of $2.7 million. Um, In today's money, that is about $20 million. Just in case you're not so good at math, $2.7 million is a lot more than $200,000. So, 91% of that $2.5 million that's left over uh, was all going to be taken away. That was all going to go to the government. But... That $2.7 million was not subject to the 91% tax rate. It was only subject to a 25% tax rate. How did that happen? Well, he hired a lobbyist who got a congressman to write a pet statute into the law that exempted his income from taxation, and it applied only to Meyer or Mayer and his associate who got those lump sum payments. That's what those 11,000 pages in the tax code were. They were a nest of cronyism. So let me make this really clear. He was going to lose 91% of his $2.5 million. Um, Pull out a calculator here. All right. $2.5 million. And he's going to only receive 9% of it. $225,000. Everything else is gone. Well... Now that he got it bumped down to a 25% tax rate, let's do it again, 2.5 million. Now he gets to keep almost 1.9 million. That is a that is a much easier tax bill to deal with, isn't it? So what he did, as we've talked about before, now the congressman's number one job is not to make laws, not to help you, not to give you free college or free health care or free child care. Their job is to get reelected. That's all that they're, that's the number one thing that they're concerned about. And the best way for them to get reelected, as we've said before, is to raise money because it costs a lot of money to have a campaign and it costs even more money if you want to sit on a committee of any kind. So it was cheaper instead of paying this $2.5 million tax bill, it was cheaper for him to probably give, you know, I don't know, $10,000 to a congressman or two and he could pay them to write him an exception in the tax code. And once he had that exception, he could continue making that money as he went along, and it was going to help him out. And even if he has to do that again when he makes another lump sum of money from some other project, it's still much, much cheaper to pay a smaller amount to someone's campaign fund than it is to pay 91% to Uncle Sam. So all of those those 10,000, 11,000 pages of tax exemptions were brought on because of the high tax rates, which means that there was basically nobody paying that 91%. They were all able to move their money into other places um, to put it in somewhere that was safe with taxes, to have themselves an exemption wrote in, and the fact is the money just didn't come in that way. Now today, they still avoid a lot of taxes, but they're not going to work as hard to avoid them if taxes are at a more reasonable price. It may be easier for them just to pay the tax bill than it is to find a workaround. But believe me, if they get into a pinch and you start trying to to soak them for more money, they're going to make a call to their senator or to their local representative and they're going to say, hey, I need you to help me out and I'm going to help you out. 
Got a quote here from uh, John F. Kennedy's SEC chairman, William Carey. He said, once you become a millionaire, you don't try to litigate a tax case. You don't try to contest the IRS uh, if you say they think you owe more money than you do. You simply get the statute changed. That's how easy it was in the 1950s to get Congress to write the pet exemption for you in the tax code. So the article goes on to say that um, by the, the Treasury's estimate uh, in the middle of this in 1957, only 43% of income in the United States was really subject to taxation. So remember, once again, page one said all income is subject to taxation. 11,000 pages later, you're down to only 43% of the income, and everything else was hidden in mortgage interest and all the other 11,000 pages of exemptions. It says even here, unions, unions ended up calling the tax code the swindle sheet because that's where the rich were able to hide their income. So the article concludes that you know that slowed down economic growth because they're, they're too busy hiding their money and getting exceptions to actually put the money toward useful projects. It did not help the economy, and that is the reason why we dumped all of that for tax rate cuts in the 1960s. So 20% tax rate, 90% tax rate, 100% tax rate, it's all actually going to be pretty much the same. And that means that if you've got enough money to be affected by it, you've got enough money to find a workaround. And, of course, um, your, your Bernie Sanders types are always going to tell you, well, we just have to close these loopholes. We have to make sure that they pay their fair share. That's very easy for you to say when you're not running for office, and that's very easy for Bernie to say when he's between campaigns. But you got to remember, he's going to want reelected because he's probably not going to be the next president He's going to want to stay the senator of Vermont, and to keep that position, he's going to accept from those donors, and those rich donors are going to want him to allow them exceptions to these insanely high taxes he's proposing. So, if we're not going to make the money to pay for all of these things in taxes, how else are we going to pay for it? Number two, inflation. One quick note here, um, uh, several times I'm going to say print money. I mean the creation of money. Uh, I know it's slightly different from actually printing physical currency, but the results here are largely the same. So a lot of times when they create money, it's going straight into a bank account somewhere. It's going straight onto a balance sheet. It's not actually getting printed out on you know, dollar bills with George Washington's face on it. So I want to give a quick example. I had a couple friends in a group chat a while ago, and they were asking about inflation and what that really looks like to you and me and, and how that actually works because it's always mentioned – that you know your money decreases in value over time, but nobody really talks about why it happens or, or how it happens. So the example I gave was, let's say you have a Michael Jordan rookie card. Um, if I'm, I'm old school, if you need to substitute this for whoever the teenagers like these days, um, you know Steph Curry or Drake, whoever it is, I, you got this rookie card, and everybody knows that. This rookie card is worth um, $100. Let's just say for this example, $100 is a lot of money. So everybody knows there are only 10 of these cards in the world, and each one is worth $100. Well, what you do is you save up your money, you don't eat out, you don't spend frivolously, and you end up buying, you're saving up and buying yourself one of these, and that's what you're going to keep for your retirement. So you buy this card. It's worth $100, and that $100 is going to be enough money to last you, you know, from the time you retire at 65 to, you know, till you die at 95. So that $100, you've got it saved up, you're set. You know now that when you retire, you can sell this, and you've got enough money to last you the rest of your life. People actually did this with cab medallions for a while until Uber caught up, and the cab medallions are now worth almost nothing, but... You've worked hard. You got your Michael Jordan card. You know now all you've got to do is work the remainder of your career, get to 65, and you're going to sell that sucker and live comfortably for the rest of your life. Well, what if I have a magic printer and I use my magic printer to print a new, authentic, 100% real Michael Jordan rookie card? Now, first of all, you're going to say, well, that's, that's kind of shady. That's a dirty thing for you to do. Well, what if I'm doing it for a good reason? What if I am, say, um, the regional manager of a paper company in Pennsylvania, 
and you know, I promised a bunch of urban school kids that I was going to pay for their college if they graduated high school. So they're all asking me, you know, Mr. Scott, what you going to do? And I say, I'm going to print this Michael Jordan rookie card and, and make your dreams come true, right? So, you know, let's let's be real here. It's fair. I, I have good intentions here. Um, and I, you know, I promised them that I was going to pay it. So I've got to, right? I can't just show up with laptop charger cords. So I print this card. And again, we all know that there are only 10 in the world and that they're worth $100. So I sell mine and I get the $100 for it. Now, because I was the first to put it into circulation, I get the full amount of that $100. But before long, people start asking around, people start counting up the numbers, and they realize that there are no longer 10 Michael Jordan rookie cards. There are 11 Michael Jordan rookie cards. So because there's been a 10% increase in the cards, there's been a 10% decrease in the value. And what you had that was once worth $100 is now worth $90. You know, if you were expecting that to be 30 years of retirement, now that's three years off of your retirement. Now, suddenly, maybe you turn 92 years old and you think, oh my goodness, where's, where's my money? Am I going to have to start getting a job again? And so everybody else who's had one of those cards has now lost part of that money. And if you are towards the low end of the totem pole and you don't make a lot of money or you don't have a lot of money, that really hurts. If you're living paycheck to paycheck and I take 10% of your money, you don't know what you're going to do to cover that last 10%. So by me doing this generous thing by printing out this card and selling it so I could send these kids off to college, I have actually hurt everyone else who already had one of those things. And I have hurt the poorest people exponentially worse because it's, it's a bigger chunk of what they own. And you're going to say, yeah, well, the, the money comes out from under the rich as well, right? Well, it does, but what if, what if I told you that there was somebody else out of those 10 Michael Jordan rookie cards, what if one of, I told you that one of them owned six rookie cards? Well, yeah, they, they lost more money, but they're also still sitting much, much better than you are. And they're also in a better position to perhaps move those funds around to make sure that that doesn't hurt them as badly the next time. So the solution here when we don't have the money to pay for the things that we're promising people is we're just going to print it off and it's just going to result in inflation. And of course, it's not quite as drastic as the example I just gave you, but I did that for easy math to make it easy to understand. But they just continually, continuously keep slowly pumping money uh, into the economy. And whether they want to use it to, to spend for war or to spend for health care or to spend for college, whatever uh, for housing loans, whatever it is, it's going to keep slowly happening. And that means your money is worth less and less as time goes on. And so those things are coming out from under you. And again, they're hurting the poor people the most. So when they do something else to help the poor people, like give them loans for houses or give them loans for college, at the same time, you're also pulling that money out from under them when it's going to exponentially hurt them worse. Hopefully that makes sense. But the other question you're going to have there is, what happens if the World Bank stops lending us money to create because Sometimes these loans come from the World Bank, and that's where we get the money from, and that's where a lot of our debt is owed. I think we're at $22 trillion right now. Now, most of us would agree that you can only borrow and or print a certain amount of money. Just like at the bar, sooner or later, they're going to call your tab. They're going to say, I know you don't have any more money than this. You've got to pay up before I'm willing to lend you anything else. Well, this is where modern monetary theory comes in. MMT for short. MMT is something that um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is big on. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders is probably into it. Um, it is a new economic theory, fairly new, that's kind of an advanced form of Keynesianism. Basically, what they say is that governments can print as much money as they want because Everybody in the country is using that money anyway. So as long as everybody is using the dollar, you can literally print an infinite amount of dollars as long as you do it slowly enough that you prevent hyperinflation. Now, hyperinflation is more than 50% inflation a month. Uh, Venezuela was in the thousand percents for a while, I, I think. So that was like 
Um, if you get into hyperinflation, that's when you know a loaf of bread is going to cost you five hundred dollars or something like that. And of course, at that point, everything is going to go crazy. The wheels are going to fall off. People are going to be starving. It's going to go nuts. But what MMT says is that as long as you keep this to a slow, steady rate, you can continuously print money endlessly and nobody cares that it loses value because we're all just using it pretty much between ourselves anyway. So the obvious question here is, does that work? Can we really do that? I mean, we're kind of doing it right now, so it, it works, doesn't it? Well, it works until it doesn't. And you're probably saying, Garrett, that's a terrible answer. That doesn't make any sense. Tell me the truth. Does it work or not? Well, if you are in a romantic relationship, and I'm sure most of you probably are because I have the best looking audience of podcast members, I would imagine, um, you promise that you're going to be with that person and you're going to love that person and you're going to spend time with them and you're going to you know, maybe meet their needs financially and emotionally and all of this stuff. And those things are understood between you and the other person. And most people, you know, don't want you to cheat on them. So you're just going to be doing these things with this person. Those things are something that you kind of promise that you're going to do forever. And you're always going to be there for them and so on. Now, as you know, a lot of relationships don't last forever. People break up every day. People get divorced every day. And a lot of times it's one party wants it more than the other. One party may not even want it at all, but it it still happens. And so you've promised to love this person, stay with this person, and and be true to only this person forever until you don't. Until something happens and you get so fed up with them, they do something that betrays you or you're just not happy anymore or whatever the the million different reasons that, that someone might break up for. Those things are all something that kind of comes in to, to break off that agreement, even though you had promised that that agreement was going to be indefinite, that that agreement was going to be forever. And so in the same way, sure, we'll all keep spending the dollar until somebody loses faith in the dollar, until maybe there's just a little bit too much inflation and people start to turn their back on it. Maybe until the rest of the world doesn't want to use our dollar anymore because it's depreciating so much. And modern monetary theory basically says that if you can keep all of that money pretty much going within your own economy, that you've got nothing to worry about. But unfortunately for us, we exist in a world economy. Most of the, most of the cheap stuff that you buy is bought in China. Most of the electronics you buy are, are made overseas in Asia somewhere. We buy a lot of things from Mexico because those things are cheaper from those places. And we've become so kind of reliant on them because it's, it's so affordable and so convenient that we don't, make a lot of that stuff here anymore. So if that dollar does fall apart, when it does fall apart, if we keep doing this, we're going to be in massive, massive trouble and there will be no currency for us to use. And we'll have to basically start from square one and and find something else to use instead, whether we borrow in other countries, whether um, you you are one of the types who think that we might move to Bitcoin, whether you think we would move to gold, whatever it is, once someone loses faith in it, you got to find something else. And all of that other debt and all of that other stuff that was bought with the old money suddenly is not so good anymore. So hopefully that provides you with a little bit better understanding of what the side effects of a lot of these things that the Democrats are asking for, what those things are going to be. The inflation, the taxes, how all of that stuff is it goes down in reality versus how it's supposed to go down in a perfect world. And hopefully you see that with so many of these things that they're advocating for in these debates and these campaigns for them to to unseat Trump as a president, you can see that a lot of these things are actually going to cause more issues and cause bigger issues than what they were supposed to fix. And remember, just a quick disclaimer, um, the Republicans are just as bad. They want to print money and tax you so that we can drop bombs on starving kids in Yemen and that we can buy police SWAT gear so they can kick down your neighbor's front door because he's over there smoking weed. And uh, the boomers, we need to pay them their social security, and we have to bail out big corporations and fund teachers' pensions. And, of course, the list goes on and on and on. They all have their stuff that they want to spend money on, and all of it has to be collected in taxes or inflation. And as we've said, rich people don't pay taxes, so you're not going to increase taxes all that much 
and um, inflation just hurts all of us at the same time. So don't let your Republican friends off the hook here. They're just as delusional as Pocahontas and Uncle Bernie and Kamala the cop. So it looks like I have run over on time once again, but wanted to make sure that we covered all of that today so that you would have that as you look forward and as you have these conversations and as you read these things in the news. Um, once more, as always, if you want to reach out to me, I am on facebook.com slash Garrett again. I do most of my stuff on twitter.com. Uh, username is Garrett again. You can also follow me on Instagram. I still haven't done anything with that account. I'm going to do that eventually. Email me Garrett again at pm.me. And I have also just signed up for a YouTube account. So if you search Make America Garrett Again, and as always, Garrett just has one R, you should be able to see these episodes on YouTube now. There's no video. It's just a a picture of the logo with the audio. But if you want to share that with somebody or uh, an easier way to listen to it if you don't have access to a podcast app or anything like that, you are more than welcome to go on there and... um, If you can do me a favor, subscribe. I need to get 100 subscribers before I can add my own username so that they can go to youtube.com slash Garrett again. I'm not able to unlock that until I get, I think, 100 subscribers. So do me a favor, log into YouTube, subscribe to me on there. Even if you're going to listen, just uh, appreciate it if you'd help me out. Make sure you're subscribing, you're listening. Give me a rating on iTunes if you want. All of those things helps the show reach more people. And most importantly, share the show with somebody. Let somebody else hear it, and hopefully we can learn as much and share as much with each other as possible so that we can be prepared for whatever these politicians and corporations and the corporate media is going to throw at us next. So thank you so much for listening. I will be back again in two weeks, but until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.